So, back to the text. And now, of course, you want to know what had happened to Edmund. He had eaten his share of the dinner, but he hadn't really enjoyed it because he was thinking all the time about Turkish delight. There's nothing that spoils the taste of good, ordinary food half so much as the memory of bad magic food. And he had heard the conversation, hadn't enjoyed it much, either because he kept on thinking that the others were taking no notice of him and trying to give him the cold shoulder. Uh, if, you, if you want to torpedo your pleasures in life, another way of doing that is through self-centeredness. You see Edmund doing that. They weren't, they weren't giving him the cold shoulder. They weren't, but he imagined it. And then he had listened until Mr. Beaver told them about Aslan. Remember how they all felt when they first heard the name Aslan last week? Well, look at this. He heard the whole arrangement. Well, he had listened until Mr. Beaver told them about Aslan until he had heard the whole arrangements for meeting Aslan at the stone table. It was then he began very quietly to edge himself under the curtain which hung over the door, except in Pauline Bain's sketching. For the mention of Aslan gave him a mysterious and horrible feeling, just like, just as it gave the others a mysterious and lovely feeling. Skip the, skip the next paragraph and go on to the next one. You mustn't think that even now Edmund was quite so bad that he actually wanted his brother and sisters to be turned into stone, because he knows that's what the the, the white witch does. He did not, he did want Turkish delight, and he did want to be a prince and later a king, and he wanted to pay Peter uh, out for calling him a beast. As for what the witch would do with the others, he didn't want her to be particularly nice to them, certainly not to put them on the same level as himself, but he managed to believe, or to pretend he believed, that she wouldn't do anything very bad to them. Another part of the human condition. You ever noticed how well we can rationalize and make excuses for even our bad behavior? That's what Edmund's doing. Uh, C.S. Lewis tells you that uh, in this text. Because, he said to himself, all these people who say nasty things about her are her enemies, and probably half of it isn't true. Well, it's all true. Uh, she She was jolly nice to me anyway, much nicer than they are. She really wasn't being nice. Again, we get confused about a whole lot of things in life. She really wasn't being nice. Uh, Much nicer than they are. I expect she is the rightful queen, really. Well, of course not. Anyway, she'll be better than that awful Aslan. Um, Usually when we we, um, reject God, we reject goodness. And by the way, we reject truth. Also, see here, here Edmund here rationalizing himself into a lot of lies. At least that was the excuse he made in his own mind for what he was doing. It wasn't a very good excuse, however, for deep down inside him, he really knew that the white witch was bad and cruel. Usually we know better. We do at some level know better than what we're thinking or what we're saying. The first thing he realized when he got outside and he found the snow falling all around him was that he left what behind? Remember we talked about the coats? They're way too big. A lot of us think it symbolizes C.S. Lewis, who's a good Anglican, symbolized baptism, the entrance into the Christian life. 
that you spend your, your life growing into. That's why in historic traditions, such as the one I happen to be a part of, we have, Paschal, we have a Paschal candle in our worship spaces. If your church has a Paschal candle, you notice there's only three times it's lit. And I won't quiz you on what those three times are. Um, the three times they're lit is during the Easter season, the 50 days of Easter. Because I hope you know in the Christian church, Easter is not just a day. Easter season's 50 days long. And Easter as a, as in itself is a lifestyle for us. Every Sunday is a little Easter. But during the 50 days of Easter, the Paschal candle's lit. The only other time during the year the Paschal candle's lit is at baptism. And then when's the other time it's lit? It's lit in a funeral, at a funeral. Put beside the casket if there's a casket. Put beside the cremains if there's cremains. Because that's when you fulfill your baptism. You enter then spend your life here in this world working to fulfill your baptism. And then um, in death you will fulfill your baptism. So, um, yeah, sometimes you just don't want to work on your baptism anymore. It's more than you want to deal with. You don't want to live as a baptized follower of Christ. You'd rather live as um, a son or daughter of the devil. But sometimes choosing daily to live as a baptized follower of Christ means you're growing into the life uh, that God has given you in Jesus Christ. And baptism is a reminder of that. That's why when in historic church usually, when we, when we reaffirm our baptisms, we say, remember your baptism and be thankful. That doesn't mean remember the day you were baptized. It means remember that you are a baptized follower of Christ and what that means. Martin Luther, if there is any Lutherans in the room, Martin Luther, when he felt particularly the devil coming after him, would say, and he would say it in Latin, he would say, I am baptized. That was his affirmation that he belonged to Jesus. He wanted to live as if he belonged to Jesus. So it's no accident that when Edmund, as he's beginning this gradual decline, decline until he hits the tipping point. There's, there's no, um, it's not accidental here that he leaves the coat behind, that, that big coat that he had to put on when he entered Narnia. Uh, he left it behind. And then, then after he left it behind, you notice what happens. He continues to walk toward the witch's castle. Hope that you saw all the examples that the further he walked toward the witch, the more isolated and more alone he became. Um, sin and evil does that to us. The more we're self-centered and focused on ourselves, and that's kind of the epitome of hell in some ways, uh, the, the more we're isolated, the more we're lonely. You notice at the top page of 91, uh, it says the silence and the loneliness was dreadful. That's why in The Great Divorce, when C.S. Lewis in that fantasy paints a, a picture of hell, uh, the gray town, the longer people are in hell, the further away from each other they move. Because they can't stand other people or God, and they, they, they put themselves at the center of the world, and on most days they don't even like themselves. But they move further and further away. So yeah, the closer you get to the enemy, um, isolation, loneliness, you see that happening here. You also, I hope you noticed, uh, the references to the moon uh, shining on um, Edmund as he's making his way to the witch's house. Now, again, to, to, to really... 
to really enjoy a lot of C.S. Lewis stuff, you need to know Western civilization. You need to know Western literature. Uh, you need to know what came before the Christian faith, because C.S. Lewis thinks it points us toward the Christian faith. For, you need to know parts of, of Western civilization, such as, you know the word lunar, right, of the moon? What's the word that we get from lunar? Lunacy. <laughs> Lunacy. So our, our ancestors always thought that the moon could make us crazy. So you keep seeing, anytime you see a reference to the moon in, in, in great literature, remember why our forefathers, foremothers, took the, took the moon and said, yeah, it makes us crazy. We still talk about what happens on, when there's a full moon, don't we? Yeah, people get crazy. My, my daughter works in the ER. She'll tell you, they get crazy when it's a full moon. <laughs> ERs fill up. Um, but yeah, there's a connection between lunar and lunacy. So whenever you see the, the moon shining on Edmund, um, let your mind go back to what the moon symbolizes in Western civilization. So, of course, he makes his way. He gets to the witch's house. And the first thing he encounters, or it takes him a while to figure it out, but he encounters statues, stone statues, which if you keep in mind... And look at the witch's house. There's not many people in that house with her. Malgram, who we'll see in a moment, is in the house with her. And we, we see of one other evil dwarf in the house with her. But everybody else has been turned to stones. You'll find Tumnus, Mr. Tumnus, Tumnus turned to stone. But you see all these statues. It takes him a little while to figure it out. One of the first ones he sees is a statue of a lion. So he begins, first it frightens him, and he realizes the statue. And then he starts thinking, this might be that great Aslan they were talking about. And the witch has already turned him into stone. So then what does he do? Poor Edmund. What does he do to the stat, what he thinks to be the statue of Aslan? Yeah, Marks takes a marker and puts a mustache um, and spectacles, right? Mustache and spectacles, draws it on the statue. Um, so what you see Aslan, you know, you, what you see Edmund doing here is he is um, mocking a representation. He, he thinks it's a representation of Aslan. It's not. But he thinks this Aslan, what Aslan has become, a representation of Aslan. So he, he mocks that representation. He trifles with that representation. Yeah, you, you see Edmund on this downward decline. And it's a gradual decline. Um, it's, again, that's, that's a warning for us. You know, when, when screw tape is talking to Wormwood, senior devil to junior devil, in the screw tape letters, he tells that junior devil, in, in regards to tempting Christians, always remember that the gradual slope, the gradual decline is the safest way to get us. We'll notice a rapid decline, but gradually we just go further and further and further, slowly away from God, like the leak of a, the air out of a tire. Yes, it's, we kind of grow gradually and we decline gradually. And we need to pay attention which direction we're going in. We know what direction Edmund's going in here. He's making his way. He's in the, he's in the witch's house now. He's in the witch's house now. Um, now he sees what he thinks is another stone animal and he goes to step over and it's not a stone animal it's Malgram 
Malgram, uh, you've already uh, been introduced to because remember the notice that was put up in Mr. Tumnus's house uh, that, that he had been arrested? Um, it was signed by Malgram, uh, the captain of the, of, the, of the White Witch's secret police or something like that. Now, what you also need to know about Malgram is, because um, you probably don't know who Malgram is either, do you? You know, um, I started to say something about your high school teachers, but I won't. Um, <laughs> Malgram is a famous great wolf from Scandinavian mythology. Now, one thing you need to understand about C.S. Lewis, he loved Western civilization. Remember what his daytime job was, uh, particularly when he got to Cambridge. They titled it this. He was a professor of medieval and Renaissance literature. Uh, he taught things like Milton and Spencer. Um, he, he loved Dante, too, by the way. Um, so he, he knew the riches of, of the Western literary um, riches. So, um, and, and they're all in his writings. Uh, we're going to see another one in a minute um, that drove J.R.R. Tolkien crazy. But um, so you, you need to see all the mythology. You need to see all the history. You need to see all the past. And what you need to understand from C.S. Lewis is all that stuff that came before Christ points to Christ. In whatever way, in whatever little way, whatever great way, that's why, and we Christians strongly affirmed uh, in the earliest days that Plato uh, pointed toward Christ in a lot of ways. Now, Plato lived 300 years uh, before Christ. But in a lot of ways, what Plato wrote... Uh, points toward Christ. Uh, you, you shouldn't be surprised. C.S. Lewis is an Orthodox Christian, so for him, Christian revelation is the epitome of revelation, is the height of truth. That doesn't mean there's not truth elsewhere, but where you find truth elsewhere um, reconciles itself with truth in the Christian faith. Where you find truth elsewhere, it points to the Christian faith. Uh, that's why we should bring all to bear on preaching Jesus. Here you got a great wolf from Scandinavian mythology that's in this story uh, that's helping you learn more about Jesus and the gospel story. When he tries to step over Malgram, Malgram is not a stone statue. He wakes up. Um, he's, he's, he's the doorkeeper for uh, the white witch. Um, and, of course, when he meets the white witch, she's angry because what has Edmund not done that she wanted him to do? bring his siblings so that she could prevent the prophecy of four humans sitting on the throne of Caraparavel. So she's angry, and he, he, um, he says, well, I, I got him into Narnia. I didn't bring him with me, but I got him into Narnia there at the beaver's house. So um, what you see at the end of the chapter is they get prepared to, to leave the, uh, Malgram um, and, uh, and the sledge or the sleigh. And you notice the last line, as they are preparing to leave, the last line in this chapter is, Make ready our sledge, ordered the witch, and use the harness without bells. Now, you notice the first time you met her on her sledge, there were bells. That's how Emma knew she was coming. Well, now they're going to use the harness without bells because, as the Scottish proverb says, um, Oh, by the way, you notice my granddaughter's middle name is Scott? Because my middle name is Scott. My son's middle name is Scott. If you want 
me to talk about my Scottish heritage, you give me a couple hours and I'll be delighted to talk with you about my Scottish heritage. Anyway, the old Scottish proverb says, the devil's boots don't creak. Again, that fits this whole story with Edmund. So you need to understand that. You know, the devil's not going to show up or send you an email and say, I'm dragging you to hell. Let's go. That's not the way the devil does it. And you see that with Edmund here. It's gradual, little by little, choice by choice. Yeah, the devil's boots don't creak. So, yeah, let's, let's, let's take the sledge and don't use the harness that has bells as we go after these kids. So now turn to chapter 10. You're not surprised because Aslan has shown up in Narnia that the witch's spell begins to break. Remember the witch's spell, always winter, never Christmas. The white witch's spell, always winter, never Christmas. That would get pretty tedious. So what you see here in chapter 10 is the witch's spell begins to break. And the, the way you, because Aslan is on the move, remember from last week, Aslan's on the move. So the witch's spell begins to break. Uh, and of course you notice that because what starts happening? Snow starts melting. And um, there's some of the best writing, I think, of C.S. Lewis in this chapter. So here, when the spell begins to break, what the story is, the beavers start their journey. You know, they you heard last week they have 15, 20 minutes to get out of their house before the white witch gets there to catch them. So they, you would think they'd be in a hurry, and everybody's in a hurry except who? Mrs. Beaver. She's the mother. She's trying to prepare for the trip. She's trying to take everything but the kitchen sink. And you notice she even says, I suppose the sewing machine is too heavy to bring. Now, she does go on to say she's, she doesn't want the white witch to mess up her sewing machine. But she's, she's being very maternal here. She's preparing for the trip. So, and, of course, the rest of them are kind of freaking out, saying, let's go, let's go, let's go. Um, she knows exactly how much time she has. She doesn't panic. I, I like Mrs. Beaver for that. You know, I, I, one thing I almost never do is panic. Um, there's no reason to panic. I can't think of many reasons to panic. But it, she doesn't panic. The rest of them are rather panicking. Oh, please, please, please do hurry, said the three children. Well, they, they start leaving. Also notice, I'm on page 102 in my edition, the snow had stopped and the moon had come out. It's a night journey. The moon had come out when they began their journey. They went in single file. First, Mr. Beaver, who came next? Lucy. Remember when she becomes queen in Narnia, she's crowned Lucy the Valiant. Lucy's the brave one here. So anyway, they, 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 they begin their journey. Um, without a sewing machine, they begin their journey, and um, um, they they uh, end up in a hiding place. They end up in a hiding place for beavers. Um, that's a good place for them to sleep, and so that they can sleep. You did notice um, Mrs. Beaver gave them something to drink that made them feel really warm inside. I'll leave that to your imagination. Yeah, England never went through prohibition. <laughs> Anglicans don't know much about prohibition in England. Anyways, they fall asleep, and they're awakened by what? Jingling bells. Now, they assume it's the white witch. 
It's not the white witch. Mr. Beaver goes up to check it out. It's not the white witch. Who is it? Father Christmas, as the British call him, or Santa Claus, um, which they sometimes call him Santa Claus. Uh, he's actually, C.S. Lewis is actually using the older phrase Father Christmas here. Now, there were C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien of Lord of the Rings were close, close friends, closer at some points in their life than other others. But um, it, it drove, and if you know anything about Lord of the Rings, you'll understand this, it drove J.R.R. Tolkien crazy that C.S. Lewis Jack would, would mix so many different mythologies and histories. I mean, you've got Scandinavian wolves, you've got Roman Greek um, fauns, uh, you've got, um, now you got Father Christmas showing up. Um, J.R.R. Tolkien's mind was a little bit more consistent. I evidently, a little bit less, well, I can't say less imaginative because I can't even understand Lord of the Rings hardly. It's so imaginative. He creates a whole world and a whole language to go with it. But C.S. Lewis is simpler in some ways, and he mixes his, not just mixes metaphors, he mixes his images from different mythologies, from different pieces of literature, and just kind of makes a conglomeration. That drove some people crazy. Um, I, most of us, though, I mean, there are, there are some good C.S. Lewis scholars who say that, you know, Jack Lewis just wasn't thinking properly when he has Santa Claus show up in Narnia. Um, but I like to think I'm in the school that says he knew exactly what he was doing. He was trying to reclaim the heritage of Father Christmas. A few years ago, I got on a circuit when I was in Franklin, North Carolina, uh, First Methodist. I got on a circuit speaking to groups during the... Um, Christmas season about St. Nicholas. I hope you know St. Nicholas, the Christian saint. St. Nicholas was a great, great Christian saint of the fourth century. Uh, thanks to Coca-Cola, thanks to Ogden Nash, thanks to a whole lot of other things, St. Nicholas has become the modern Santa Claus. You know, Santa Claus has the, the think about look at, think about the Santa Claus hat for a moment. What that is, is the bishop's mitre falling over. So part of what C.S. Lewis is doing here, part of what I tried to do, what I, w what I wish we would do, is um, renovate, reclaim the image of St. Nicholas. St. Nicholas was one of the saints at the Council of Nicaea who created the Nicene Creed for the Christian community. There's a lot of wonderful things about St. Nicholas which made him so popular around Europe that he morphed into things like Father Christmas. And now people have lost all religious connection with uh, St. Nicholas. So some of us think perhaps C.S. Lewis is, is, is trying to redeem the image here. Um, but, and more importantly, what he's doing, you know, the white witch's spell is breaking because Aslan is on the move. Aslan has shown up. In our th world, and this is what J.R.R. Tolkien said, our world, not Narnia, but in our world, St. Nicholas and Christmas sort of come together. Saint Nick, and this is, this is the way Jack said, this winter's going to have a Christmas in it. So Father Christmas shows up. Um, and, um, you know, again, the children who are reading this first were English-British children. 
who knew all about Father Christmas. So Father Christmas here shows up, um, and he gives gifts. Look on pay. The gifts are, are really important. Um, on, in my edition, probably the same as yours, page 108 in this chapter, the spell begins to break. It's where um, Father Christmas starts talking or it continues talking. He says, these are your presents. And these gifts that these children get will follow them throughout all the Chronicles of Narnia. These are your presents, was the answer. And they are tools, not toys, because they're going to be used throughout the whole Chronicles of Narnia. They're going to be used as, as, as um, Susan and, and eventually Edmund too. But Susan and, and, and Lucy and um, um, Peter... Uh, as they make their journey, as they fight their fights, as they become kings and queens. So that's why they're tools, not toys. The time to use them is perhaps near at hand. Father Christmas says, bear them well. With these words, he handed to Peter a shield and a sword. The shield was the color of silver, and across it there ramped a red line on that shield. Um, so bright as as bright as a ripe strawberry at the moment when you pick it. The hilt of the sword was of gold. It had a sheath and a sword belt and everything it needed. And it was just the right size and weight for Peter to use. Peter was silent and solemn as he received these gifts, for he felt that they were a very serious kind of present. And they are. You'll learn the rest of the Chronicles. Susan, Eve's daughter, said, Father Christmas, these are for you. And he handed her a bow and a quiver full of arrows and a, and a little ivory horn. You must use the bow only in great need, he said, for I do not mean you to fight in the battle. Here's one of those passages, and it's written, it's written in 1949. It, starts getting, it gets published in 1950. He's writing it in 49 and 50. And some people accuse him of being sexist toward females. I think he was ahead of his age for when he was writing. But you notice he does say here, because again, he's a medievalist. He's really into kind of, he's into knights and chivalry. It feels that way throughout all the chronicles. He's, in, he's into King Arthur legends. Anyway, so here um, he says the, the girls aren't to fight. I do not mean you to fight in battle. He's, talk, he's talking to Susan at this point. I do not mean you to fight in battle. It, it, battle. it, does, it does not easily miss uh, the arrow, bow and arrow. It does not easily miss. And when you put this horn to your lips and blow it, then wherever you are, I think help of some kind will come to you. That happens in the other chronicles. Last of all, he said, Lucy, Eve's daughter, um, and Lucy came forward. He gave her a little bottle of what looked like glass, but people said afterwards that it was made of diamond and a small dagger. In this bottle, there's a cordial made of the juice of one of the fire flowers that grows in the mountains of sun. If you or any of your friends is hurt, a few drops of this will restore them, will heal them. And the dagger is to defend yourself at great need, but you are also not to be in battle. You know, only Edmund and Peter go to battle, but if they need to defend themselves, they've got this. And then, uh, of course, Lucy, who will become Lucy the Valiant. Lucy says, why, sir? I, I think, I don't know, but I think I could be brave enough. She's Lucy the Valiant. That is not the point, he said. This is the line that got C.S. Lewis in trouble. And battles are ugly when women fight. Um, unless you're Joan of Arc, 
the medieval world didn't think much of women going to war. Um, but also keep in mind, we know chronology, by the way, from later chronicles. Keep in mind, in, in, in the line of the witch in the wardrobe, Peter is 13, um, Susan's 12, Edmund's 10, and Lucy's 8. So, I mean, these two females are 12 and 8. So, yeah, they don't need to be in battle. I'm not so sure about the 13-year-old and 12-year-old, but at least they're boys, uh, and they are going to get older. So, anyway, here they get to, pre- here they get to presents. These going to, you're going to see these used in the rest of this chronicle and others. They get their presents. They head off. <laughs> they head off after Mrs. Beaver feeds them breakfast. They head off, and that takes you to chapter 11. Aslan is near. So um, what you see here is, um, of course, Edmund still wants his Turkish delight. And the queen just tells him to be quiet, but then he realizes he doesn't want the, she doesn't want, as she says, the brat to faint on the way. So um, he, she, she does feed him, but not Turkish delight. Hard, crusty bread and water. Again, C.S. Lewis would tell you, sin never provides what it promises. It doesn't. It just the pleasure of sin just never provides what you think it will provide. Anyway, so he doesn't get his Turkish delight, but he gets some food. Um, so they 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 head out. Um, Malgram and his wolves go to the beaver's house, but um, the white witch and Edmund head toward the stone table because that's where Aslan's going to be, and that's going to be a big part of the story later on. They head toward the stone table. Uh, as they head toward the stone table, they run across a group of, um, well, that's not all animals, Squirrel and his wife with their children, two satyrs and a dwarf and an old dog fox. He runs across this group, and they're having a party, and because they're, they're celebrating what? With plum pudding and holly. Christmas. Christmas. Yeah. White witches spelled as breaking. It's not going to be winter with never Christmas now. So, of course, you know the white witch is not going to respond well to that. But that's another symbol that Aslan's on the move and her spell, her power is breaking. So the white witch, of course, turns them into stone. Uh, that's, that's what she does to the Christmas party. Then, but what I want you to notice, look at page 116. At the bottom of page, on my edition, page 116, at the bottom of the page, right before, right above the sketching of the party, um, the witch is speaking. As for you, said the witch, giving Edmund a stunning blow on the face as she remounted the sledge, let that teach you to ask favor for spies and traitors, people having a party, drive on. And Edmund, for the first time in this story, felt sorry for someone besides himself. That's the tipping point. You notice when he went to the white witch's house and he saw the stone statues, he knew they were living creatures that had been turned into stone statues. There's no sense he felt compassion or pity. Here he starts feeling some compassion. 
he starts feeling pity. So I hope you underline that in the book. This is one of those tipping points for Edmund. And Edmund's really important to this story. Edmund, for the first time in his story, felt sorry for someone besides himself. That's great for Edmund because I know some 75-year-old people that haven't got to that point yet. Um, that's great for Edmund. He's finally at that point, he starts feeling sorry for, for those, those animals and satyrs that were having the Christmas party that the witch turns to um, stone. So anyway, the witch continues on, but as, as winter is going away, um, what happens to her travel on her sledge or her sleigh? You can't do it anymore because the snow's going away. Is trying to drive a sleigh through the mud. So they finally get out and they start walking. Now, I want to show you a passage that many people think is one of the most beautiful descriptive passages C.S. Lewis ever wrote. And that's saying a lot because he wrote a lot. If you look at the bottom of page 120, uh, this chapter is just all about how things are changing because the white witch's power is being broke at the bottom of chapter 20 soon there were more wonderful things happening coming suddenly round a corner into a glade of silver birch trees edmund saw the ground covered in all directions with little flowers celadines the noise of water grew louder they hadn't heard that in Narnia, sound of running water. The noise of water grew louder. Presently, they actually crossed a stream. Beyond it, they found snowdrops. Mind your own business, said the dwarf when he saw that Edmund had turned his head to look at them, and he gave the rope a vicious jerk. But, of course, this didn't prevent Edmund from seeing. Edmund's changing. Only five minutes later, he noticed a dozen crocuses growing around the foot of an old tree, gold and purple and white. Then came a sound even more delicious than the sound of water. Close beside the path they were following, a bird suddenly, a bird suddenly chirped from the branch of a tree. It was answered by the chuckle of another bird a little further off. And then, as if that had been a signal, there was chattering and chirruping and in every direction and then a moment of full song and within five minutes the whole wood was ringing with birds music and wherever edmund's eyes turned he saw birds alighting on branches or sailing overhead or chasing one another or having their little quarrels or tidying up the feathers with their beaks yeah things are changing and they're changing for edmund too and the closer you get to who God wants you to be, you even see things differently. You know, he's noticing what's happening around him, and that evil dwarf doesn't even want him to look at it. Well, you see things differently when God's grace heals your eyes. So pay attention to what you see and what you don't see in life. When Christ is in your life, you, you see things differently. So, um, yeah, they're walking. They're watching watching spring come. Um and then the way the chapter ends is the white witch, who's not having a good day, and I assume you figured that one out. The white witch says, if either of you mentions that name again, because uh, the dwarf had just said something about Aslan, if either of you mentions that name again, said the witch, he shall instantly be killed. Can't even mention his name. So um, that, there's the three chapters. Um, Grab your Bibles for a second as we wrap up. Um, 
These are some texts that I think if you were just to meditate on Edmund and what's going on with Edmund and how the white witch is functioning, what the white witch is doing, what what, what the white witch has done to Narnia. Um, here are some texts, uh, probably at least one of these texts, maybe two of them, probably not all three, uh, have already popped into your mind. If you go to 2 Timothy chapter 2 first, these are all going to be in the, the New Testament. Two, three short text, and you can draw, and you you'll make the connections between these texts and what's going on. Second Timothy chapter uh, two. I'll begin reading at verse twenty-two, uh, where the apostle Paul is writing the young Timothy, of course, and he says to the young Timothy, "So flee youthful passions, Timothy. Some old people need to flee youthful passions." So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. People like Lucy have a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps... God may perhaps, and here's why I see Edmund, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses. Edmund does. He gets to rule in Narnia eventually. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, snare of the white witch, after being captured by him or the white witch to do his or the white witch's will. Um, look at 1 Peter 5, 8. This, this may be the verse that's already popped into your mind. Um, this, this should be the verse that popped into your mind when I said, um, devil's boots don't creak. Um, this is a famous verse in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Um, the second part of this verse is the famous part, but I'll give you the whole verse, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. If you can't find it, ask a Baptist at your table. They'll find it for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Yeah, devil's boots don't creak. He comes as a white angel. Um, Your ancestors knew that and knew that well. In the modern world... I don't know we know that. I've threatened for 35 years. I'm going to do this before I retire one of these days. I, for 35 years, I've threatened that uh, one Sunday morning when we're singing A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and we get to that part of A Mighty Fortress where Luther wrote, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, I'm just going to stop the congregation and say, do y'all believe that? I think in this modern world, we're so scientific and materialistic, we don't even know we got an enemy prowling around to defeat us. You know, I told you Martin Luther would fight with the devil and tell the devil he was a baptized, he was a baptized follower of Christ. But yeah, we have an enemy that's prowling about seeing who he may devour. You need to, particularly as you watch um, what happens when Aslan shows up in Narnia, a verse that I'll... To just go go east a little bit in your New Testament to 1 John. And in 1 John 3, 8, um, a, a really encouraging 
verse from the New Testament that is behind a whole lot of the chronicle work, particularly in the line of the witch in the wardrobe. If you look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, the apostle late in his life, the last apostle to die, St. John, wrote this uh, in verse 8 of chapter 3. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, and John always kind of says that, a practice of sinning. You just don't mess up every now and again or slip into a sin. But whoever makes a practice of sinning, when that sin becomes a lifestyle, that's when you need to really be concerned. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. I'll just stop there for a moment. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And here's the encouragement. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Um, Yeah, when Aslan shows up, everything starts changing in Narnia. When Aslan shows up, everything the white witch had done, from creating winter with no Christmas, from turning living creatures into stone, that's all going to change as you make your way through the Chronicles of Narnia. So that's a good stopping point. Um, Let's pray together. Father, I'm grateful for these people that want to grow in their faith and that are willing to use whatever tool you give them to grow in their faith. And God, we're grateful for the great minds such as C.S. Lewis that you have allowed to bless us. We pray that we will be fervent and energetic and committed and dedicating to seeking your truth and to living your truth. For we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Go in peace. Uh, if you're interested in the one-week VBS, just fill that out. Make sure you write your email very legibly for me. Um, and fill it out. Just leave it on the table. But I'd love to have you in that. Make some new friends in the room.